Today, we want to look at something that we don't always consider about Christ, and that is the present tense ongoing ministry of Christ to his people. Now, you want to know this. He's ministering, and it all goes back to what he did on the cross. The cross bought him his present ministry as high priest and advocate, and these things we'll be looking at. But the cross paid for it, but there's an ongoing aspect to our salvation. It's not just the cross, but the ongoing application of it to our lives. I think this is the situation. Uh, when we, the, the Christian life, and to describe it is sometimes a little bit complex. When you ask a person, are you saved? How could you answer that? Well, most of you couldn't. Okay, you may not know you're saved, and you may not be saved. But then, I mean, that is quite a deal. I am saved, and that's Ephesians 2 eight. for by grace you've been saved. And it's real strong in the Greek language. It's, it's a perfect tense. It, it, it's a fact. It's happened, and the results remain. So it's strong. Uh, so you could say, I have been saved. But then we let ask another question. Uh, are you being saved? Because you have Paul is told, preach to your congregation, and if you'll pay attention to your life and to your teaching, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Very interesting. Or uh, Philippians 2.12 Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It, it's a, there's a present tense going on, rescuing us from indwelling sin, rescuing us from temptation, uh, rescuing. So there is an ongoing, you can say, I am being saved. And then you can finally say, I'm going to be saved. So, well, when's that? I have not received a glorified body yet. In God's mind, I'm glorified, but I've not experienced that. I'm waiting for that to happen. So Bishop Westcott, famous Greek scholar, uh, great commentaries on Hebrews and John, he was asked by a Salvation Army lassie one time, said uh, she was an evangelist on the streets of London, and she said, are you saved? And him being the Greek scholar he was, said, do you mean have I been saved? Am I being saved or I will be saved? And the little lassie said, are you saved? She didn't know anything about Greek tenses. She didn't know anything about three tenses. And so you look at us, you could say, uh, Christ died on the cross, that's all it took. Well, that's all it took in the way of sacrifices. Never any more sacrifice for sin. Once for all, Christ. And there's no more middlemen. You don't need a, a Jewish priesthood. You don't need a Catholic priesthood. You don't need a Protestant priesthood. There's only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So the, the sacrifice has been done. And all the middlemen have been removed down here on earth. So any religion that has middlemen, it, it's all anathema. I'm not your middleman to God. I'm just a proclaimer of God's word, but not the middleman. And so we think of 
what is Christ presently doing to help us? You know, if, the best thing God could have done for most of us, saved us and killed us at the same moment. There'd be no messing up. There'd be no problem. But God gets great glory at, at taking saved sinners and getting them through and keeping them in a world full of sin. And that was John 17. Keep them in the world. So we want to look at five things Christ is able to do based on his finished work on the cross. And we want to look at those. One, he's a sympathetic high priest. Two, he's an intercessor. Three, he's a mediator. By him, fourthly, we have access to God. And fifthly, we have an advocate in the heavens. So let's look at it. Look at Hebrews 2, verse 17. It says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now look at chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Look at chapter 5. For every high priest chosen from a men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. The high priest's job is to represent man to God and God to man. But watch what he goes on to say. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. But because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins <clears throat> just as he does for those of the people and no one takes this honor unto himself. So he said that human high priests, their weakness <clears throat> is, is a friendly thing for us. They can sympathize. Instead of telling us off or bringing the sacrifice for messing up, they said, no, I have to bring sacrifice for my own. I mess up all the time. But we have one who's never messed up. We have one who's never sinned. But because he experienced humanity and he became, I, I cannot plumb the depth of what it means that Christ was never a woman, so he never had the woman issues to deal with. But it's, the idea is every realm of testing, every realm of human frailty and temptation, he has tasted. He's experienced. How all that works, I'm not sure I can explain but it is, uh, without ever becoming the sinner, 
without ever entering into a lifestyle of rebellion. He understands the dynamic going on in the human heart. He understands the frailty, the weakness, and it says he's able to sympathize. That's, that's what it says in chapter 4. He can sympathize with human frailty. And so we find that Christ, and, and out of that sympathy, he uh, represents us, and he says several things. Listen to what he says in verse 18, chapter 2. Because he has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. And that word is he's able, has the power, and the strength to come as your deliverer. There's something about God that's wonderful. Uh, just to say God has power is not comforting to me. Because power can be used against you. But he said he's not only powerful, but he's loving. His loving kindness is forever. So we have a God that says, I'm all powerful, but there's no one that will ever love you more than me. The power I have is for you. That's, all, that's totally different. Power in the hands of your enemy is a scary thing. Power in the hands of your God, your deliverer, your Savior. So he says, first of all, I can help you in temptation. I can help you in the human condition. Then you come over to chapter 4 once again, and he says, I want you to approach the throne of God with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. Let me tell you, everything in the Old Testament did not say draw near. It was scary to draw near to God. They had to come through bloody sacrifices. They had to appoint a man that once a year on the 14th day of Nisan, Yom Kippur, he had at the risk of his own life, he had to draw nigh, he had to be ceremonially clean, uh, the sacrifice had to be without blemish, all these conditions to come out alive. And when you get in there, you don't say, hey, how are you, God? And none of that. None of this. I mean, it was trembling. The, the assignment was to come out alive. If you draw nigh, do you remember what Uzzah did when they're bringing the ark back? And, and the ox stumbled. He just put out his hand to steady it dead on the spot. God's saying, you don't steady God. God doesn't need to be steadied. This ark represents my presence. And kill, I thought the guy deserved a break. God said, no, no, it represents, it represents a human effort to steady up God. It's an insult. Don't insult God. So to draw nigh, I mean, just think of the, when Jesus was on the earth, you had the court of the Gentiles. You had the court of the, uh, where the women were. Uh, you, you had all these uh, places you had to go through, and us Christians take so for granted. Well, I just talked to God. No, wait, wait, wait. Wasn't that simple? You, you got this because of what Christ did for you to give you open privilege that you can come with boldness, draw near, and you can speak with confidence, which means plainly, directly, 
This was all but through the sacrificial death of Christ. Because God doesn't want sinners bopping into his presence apart from Christ. We're too flippant about this God because we don't see him as holy, set apart, and powerful. He, he's another form of Santa Claus to us. But he's high, he's holy. His spoken word will consume the universe, Peter said. He'll speak the word and everything turns into fire. No, he's a, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Fearful thing. And here he's telling these people who've been used to all of these going through the steps, going through the right man, right sacrifice, right court, and all of a sudden, the veil's rent. When you want to talk to me, come, and you'll find a sympathetic high priest that's full of mercy, and I'm reliable. You can talk to me because I represent you to God, a God-man. That can simp not a pure spirit being. See, the Gnostic error that was fought in the book of Colossians was that the Gnostics taught that God is too pure to ever be contaminated by touching man. And so they developed a whole a system, an eon of gods, and they did it through angels. One angel, one God, one angel, one God, and so they said of Christ, he could not have been God. God cannot be contaminated by touching flesh because they were saying that matter is evil. And all of a sudden, the gospel breaks out. Our God became a man. He touched lepers. He touched the sick. He touched people. God can touch a sinner without being contaminated. He touched you without being contaminated by you. He's a sympathetic, faithful high priest. He goes on to say in the word that he is an intercessor. Look at uh, Romans. When the question comes up, can one salvation be lost? Uh, and listen to what Paul's appeal to uh, the believers is. He talks about God's children, and he says in verse 33, 833, who shall bring any charge against God's elect. Well, let's see. I, there's quite a few folks can charge God's elect, I think. Uh, critics, the devil, your wife, your husband. A lot of folks that can be critical of you and bring a charge. He's a jerk. He was wrong. Ah, blah, 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 all that. There's plenty of people who charge you with something, Right? So let's don't act like, oh, that never happens. Um, but notice what he says. Uh, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give up all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, let's, first of all, let's ask, will it be God the Father? It is God who declares sinners right in his eyes, so it won't come from God. He's the one that justifies us, declares us to be in the right. Two, who is to condemn? Will it be Christ? Well, he's the one who died. More than that, 
He was raised, and he was at the right hand of God, who indeed is charging us. Are you reading? Are you awake? Correct me. What is he doing? Interceding for us. Hmm. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It won't be the Father. It won't be the Son. Who can do it? Nothing can do it. Nothing. Because you've got an interceding God up there for you that is praying for you, and many a prayer answered, many a danger you've never seen because he already cut it off. He's praying. Look at Hebrews. Go back to Hebrews uh, chapter 7. Verse 25, notice that great verse. He said that uh, consequently, he is able to save us forever. He is able to save to the uttermost, that means completely, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives, always lives to make intercession for them. Is that astounding that Christ is constantly praying to the Father about what you need? Have you ever had someone say, uh, uh, I'll, I'll pray for you, and the next time you see them, you say, well, God did it. And they say, what was it? <laughs> or even yourself, yeah, I'll pray for you, and they come back. Oh, we had a miracle. Oh, you say, oh, praise God. And that one, what was it? He's not an absent-minded intercessor. By the way, instead of telling people you'll pray for them, why don't you just stop it? Let's pray right now. I want to get over it. We'll, we'll pray right now. Interceding, someone going in between and trying to get you what you need. So we have that going on constantly in the heavens. It's all a part of his high priestly ministry. Well, there's another concept, 1 Timothy 2.5. 1 Timothy 2.5, he said there is uh, many mediators. No. There is one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Any religion that says they have any mediator between you and God other than Christ is false. It's wrong. It's an insult to the high priestly ministry of Christ. I was, in, um, I was at the main Catholic cathedral in Mexico City. Uh, I had to stand in line. Many people were crawling. Because at that cathedral, the, the biggest one in Mexico City, uh, is where Mary, there's a statue of Mary, and Jesus was the baby at her feet. And you were hoping you would get in all kinds of confessional booths around the building. And they hoped to get in there. Many would kiss the statue. And the idea in Madonna infant worship that came out of Rome is the idea Mary is the compassionate one. She's the one that really gets you to God because she's a woman. She can nurture. She can feel. She can sympathize. And even the son has to go through Mary. No such thing. 
No such thing. Confessing booths all over. Wait, why am I confessing to another sinner my sins? I, I am not ever told to have to confess. James says if we confess our sins one to another, but it's in the context, it's admitting we sin, admitting our fault. Instead of always having to look good, who's lying to who? We all have faults. You, you reason you don't think you have faults, you're blind. But believe me, other people see them, and it's painful when we find out they're seeing something we didn't know that was there. So we all have to be humble about the fact we're frail. We're touched with humanity. But a mediator, there's only one. See, this was Job's problem in Job 9 when he said, I've got these boils. I probably have me to file bankruptcy. I, the graves of my children, 10 of them, have been already done. I'm a man being surrounded with comforters, my friends, who keep saying, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, I'm guilty. And I'm not able to defend myself, not even to them, let alone to God. And, and it seems like in uh, exasperation in Job 9.32, the rest of that chapter, he said, I wish, I wish, I had somebody that could feel what I feel and could talk for me in God's presence because he knows what I've done. He knows, and ultimately Job says, I have to put my hand over my mouth. I am at my best an unclean man, at my best, but I haven't gone out and done a sin to bring this upon me. And we know the narrative that is true. But he said, I'm being bombarded. The judgment of the Most High is on me. And my so-called comforters are saying, you must be in sin. You can't suffer this much and be a servant of God. You're guilty. You're guilty. You're guilty. And he said, I would, I would. There was another one that could lay their hand on me and lay their hand on God. Would you, it's like he's saying, I wish somebody could talk for me. I wish somebody could represent me. And there was no one until Jesus. There was no one. You know, I know I have fulfilled the saying of, I think it was Lincoln, he who has himself for a lawyer has a fool. And I went to tax court being told not to get a lawyer, but to represent myself before the federal government that I didn't owe the money. Well, let me tell you, you're a fool to go without representation. The judge was kind because he saw a bozo doing something he shouldn't be doing, presenting his case as I was advised, and I prepared to present the case very intimidating to go to federal court with a circuit-riding judge that's nearly threw out the lawyer before you because he just emotioned to the witness and he threatened right there in front of a full court, I will kick you out if you move one more time. Then I think, I'm coming before this man. You pay men to speak for you. Job said, I have no one. 
to represent me before God. Then Jesus comes, and God wants to go on record. You've got a mediator, Job. There's one that can lay hands on God and lay hands on the sinner and reconcile them. Only in Jesus Christ did that ever happen. It's the only one. Fourth thing we have in Jesus that is so wonderful. Let's go to Romans 5. The dad just get on the diving board and make you go all over the Bible. It's worth it, though. Look at Romans 5. Look what you get because he's in the heavens. 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, the Lord Jesus, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we permanently stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Follow that verse on access that that's part of our justification. Look what he says in Ephesians chapter 2, speaking of the privilege of Jew and Gentile. He says, Christ, in verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Probably the far off were the Gentiles, the Jews were near, for through him, that is through Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. Wait, you're saying the one that was held us out by curtains, by fire, by a whole regiment of priests, this one is saying, you now have access to the Father just like that. You don't make an appointment. You don't go through a middleman. You don't go through a big sacrificial system. You mean I can go into the presence of God anytime I want? Yes, if you have taken Christ as your Savior, you get a free pass into heaven. And in prayer, you go to him. I don't go through beads. I don't go through all this other stuff. I don't, I don't go. I'm not heard because I pray loud, that I pray good. I'm heard because I come through Jesus. And I come to the Father. I've got access. Look at what he says in chapter 3. Three twelve. In whom, speak, I'll pick up 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he's realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. In whom, Christ, we have boldness. And that word means uh, freedom of speech. There's nothing as artificial sometimes as hearing people pray. Sometimes it's an exercise in blabber. They don't know how to pray. Vain repetition. That's what the Pharisees did. What are you doing? You're babbling. 
You're not hurt for your much speak. You're not hurt because you pray long. I grew up in a tradition where people prayed long. They prayed very emotional, and, and that's all right. But, I, you know, I thought if I didn't pray at least 30 minutes, I hadn't prayed. Do you, have you ever been there? Does God answer two-minute prayers? How do you think you've stayed alive on the freeway? <laughs> two-minute prayers. Uh, but look at this. In him we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Uh, confidence, uh, he will hear me. I won't be shut out. Uh, access. I think uh, prayer is probably the most neglected privilege you have because you've made it hard. You've made it hard. Uh, <laughs> you think of prayer life. Do you have a prayer life? I mean, besides emergency calls. You, you know, it struck me that Daniel was willing to lose his life and wound up, as it were, in the mouth of a lion over his prayer life. I said his prayer life. He prayed three times a day, opened his windows as a Babylonian uh, official next to the king. They, they wanted to frame him. They wanted to get him killed. So they got the king to pass. You only pray to one God. If you pray to any other God, you're dead meat. So they passed the rule. They framed Daniel. And, they, and then they post a lookout. He won't keep it. He won't obey it. And sure enough, Daniel said, I pray three times a day. You can just put it on the clock. I pray in the morning. I pray at noon. I pray in the evening. And the next thing you know it, he's being thrown in a den of hungry lions, so hungry that the next shift of men, their bones are broken before they hit the ground. Yeah. They knew how to kill. But why not Daniel. God said, a man that prays like that, I can, I, can, I can lock the jaw of the lion. I know how. I've got special holes. See, what, what has it taken to ruin your prayer life? The threat of your life? What would it take to get you to pray? National emergency? Well, we're living through national emergency all the time. Good night. I'm wanting to cancel my paper. I'm sick of what they're doing in Washington. I'm trying to find out what they're doing in heaven. I get good news. Do you have a prayer life? And so here he says, you've got access. It's an amazing thing if you ever read the uh, life of uh, Lincoln. Carl Sandburg was famous for his biography on Lincoln. And uh, Lincoln and Mary Todd Lincoln, they lost a son. And uh, she uh, had a nervous breakdown and became a uh, very paranoid woman after that. She was a nervous wreck. And then during the Civil War, uh, their oldest remaining son, he wanted to join 
the Union forces, and she kept fighting with Lincoln. You can't let him join. You can't let him join. I've already lost one son. Don't be letting the boy do it. In the midst of that, and a woman who was a wreck, and who wouldn't be a wreck living with Lincoln trying to carry the nation. It's a very uh, heartbreaking story as you read it. But there's a great irritant that happened all the time at the White House, and that was no matter what cabinet meeting Lincoln was in, it seemed like this little five-year-old boy named Tad would want to come in and hug his dad, kiss his dad, sit on his lap, and men like Stevens and the others says, my lands, Lincoln, don't teach the boy. We're trying to run a nation. You don't have time to be messing with the baby boy. And Lincoln told all of his soldiers and all of his bodyguards, any time Tad wants in, you let him in. Don't shut out a son. And what God has told and Jesus really has told angels and told demons, never shut out a son that comes to me. You come. You come. He'll hear you. He'll sympathize with you. And he will be reliable to rescue you. It's there. It's waiting. He's done it for millions. Why don't you cash in on it? It always bought at the cross. Fifth thing we want to look at is 1 John. 1 John. Look at chapter 1. I wish someone had shown me this chapter when I was first saved. It would have saved me a lot of um, uh, doubtful moments about my salvation. Uh, listen to what he says. Verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, probably holy, and he's not just holy, but he's a God who has manifested himself. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, I think in the light of his revealed will, of his character, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, is continually cleansing us from all sin. Notice the word sin, not sins. All sin. Now, when we use sin singular, it's usually the sin principle within, indwelling sin. Did you know if you went a whole day without ever committing an act of sin, you still got sin within you? Because you carry a sin nature. Uh, it, and, and it's a defiling thing. I mean, Jesus said, out of the heart come evil thoughts and come all this corruption. It just, even though we're saved, that heart still coughs up bad stuff that we have to say, that's wrong, that's wrong. And, but he said, at the same time, Christ is continually cleansing us from all the effects and all the judgment that would come with just that obnoxious nature within us. Okay, he's doing that, and that's good. That's the cross work is being applied to me continually. Do you see that? And if it's doing it continually, I wonder if he's cleansing me when I'm asleep. He's cleansing me for what? Have you ever had a bad dream? 
Have you ever had a dream uh, uh, you were kissing the wrong woman? <laughs> ever dream where you were choking somebody you shouldn't be choking? Hey, where'd that come from? I said, good night. Uh, I've had to get up. Lord, I don't buy a thing I dreamed. I don't know where that came from. But I got to confess it and just let him know I don't buy that. But the Lord is cleansing continually. Then, watch this. If we say we have no sin principle, and I grew up with people that were close to that, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You go around and say, I don't have a sin nature, why, you deceived person. You, you just don't know, do you? Yeah, you do have a sin principle. Well, uh, if you don't believe it, ask your wife and ask your kids. They know. They've got right theology about you. Then, watch. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to, uh, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Wow. Uh, on, on the surface, that is so simplistic, I find it too simplistic. I mean, come on. I just confess it and you'll forget. Uh, Lord, I just robbed a bank. I, I'm going to let you know. Well, that's cleanse. Uh, you know, I just stole a thousand bucks from a guy. I like to confess it. Lord, I stole a thousand. Just want you to know. Anyway, it's a little bit more involved than just saying I did it. I mean, that might have to be. You might have to serve five years. And God said, "Yeah, I forgave you, but not California." <laughs> now you do have to deal with Caesar, and so don't get carried away. But it seems to be saying that all I need to do when I sin is confess it to Jesus Christ and it says two things about him. He will be faithful in this. Okay, I can rely on him. And he will be righteous, which I'm expecting to say he will be merciful. Isn't that what he said? He uh, merciful, but he said, didn't say that. He said he's righteous. The other word, wait, I'll be right in forgiving you. Wait, how can you be right in forgiving me? Because I died for the sin you confessed, and I satisfied God's righteous anger against what you did. And we don't need to re-crucify me. You don't have to bring additional sacrifices and all your, um, your tears and uh, sorrow and all that. No, no. The cleansing comes from me, and what I'm looking for you to do is to admit you did it. Because sin makes you want to hide it, cover it, lie about it. Uh, and we have craziness like in the garden. They start running. They start blaming. All of that goes on. He simplifies it by saying, would you just admit you did it? Just admit you did it. Call it what I do. Don't, don't call your sin, Lord, you know the old song, if I've committed any sin today, oh, baloney. It's sentimental. This confession is you name it. You know what you did. I, this is wrong. 
And it's painful because Carolyn has to be practiced this in marriage. She heard this sermon one time, and I said, well, I'm sorry. She said, you're sorry for what? <laughs> I said, hey, that's torture. I said, I'm sorry. Be glad. No, you didn't name it. No, that hurts too much. I'd have to admit I really did do it. I'm sorry. Oh, you're not either. You just got caught. <laughs> now name it. Name it, and he will cleanse. And then it goes on. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. That is, if we have not sinned in the past. I never sinned. Oh, man. His word is not in us. You're out to lunch. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not even sin once. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate or a legal defense, use of a lawyer, use of someone that would represent you before the king. We have a legal defender facing the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's not a crooked lawyer. He operates on the basis of righteousness. How can he appeal for you to be forgiven? Because he has righteously dealt with the crime by dying for it. He has paid for your sin. It is no cheap forgiveness for God's son to hang on the cross for your sins. And if you got this flipping, well, I, if you know it's good, it's like God's obligation. Well, God, you're God. You've got to forgive. No, he doesn't. Why do you think people are going to hell? God doesn't forgive them. God isn't forgiving everybody. You hear? You hear. Unless you receive Christ and he's your Savior, you have no forgiveness. There is none in any other's name but the name of Jesus. You have to have him. But when you have him as your Savior, he becomes your legal defender in the third heaven. You confess it, and in his righteousness as the one who satisfied God's wrath regarding your sin, you will be forgiven. Now, that, that sounds nice. Maybe or may not sound nice. It's a truth. I don't care if it sounds nice. It's a truth. Uh, now, I'm not trying to be nice. What's true? Let me tell you what happened to me. I, okay, I get saved, 14. Uh, and uh, I was always afraid to get saved because I knew I couldn't live like the people I got saved among. I mean, they were strict. Uh, we, we had a rule that God hadn't even made on a lot of stuff. And uh, so uh, I... Uh, okay, I make this start out this journey with the Lord. I'm living for Him, but I I, I'm, I get saved in the summer, and I found in our youth group we could all live it in the summer. Yeah, it's when we went back to school. So in in time I sinned, I cussed probably, uh, and something like that. Okay, cussed or uh, you know. Whatever, it doesn't matter what the sin was. But when I did that, I said, wow, I thought I'd become a Christian. I just received Christ. And when I did that, I knew it was wrong, and I felt bad. And I said, 
well, wait, wait, wait. Now, now what's my status before God now? Uh, am I really saved? Wouldn't God take care of bad language? I mean, that, that should have dropped off because you become a new creation, you know. All things become new. Your newness in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, you became a part of a new creation in Christ, but you ain't brand new down here. He's going to work on you. He's going to start a process. But in God's sight, I'm perfect. I'm accepted because I'm in the beloved. But down here, you still got to work on my mouth, my mind, my morals, my money. Uh, man, I hate to say it, my marriage. Good night, Lord. I just wanted to go to heaven. I didn't want to be changed. Don't change me. I just want to sneak into heaven. If I can get into heaven cussing like a sailor, good. And God said, no, I, I change your vocabulary when I save you. Well, Lord, I'm from Richmond. He said, I don't care. I'm from heaven. And I want to change you. And so I did that. And guess what I did? Nobody ever showed me First John. I didn't know that. And so then after that sin, I probably did another one. I did another one. And after about the tenth one, I said, I must not be saved. Uh, it's building up in me. I'm feeling guilty all the time. And then school started, and oh man, I started going to get dances, and we couldn't go to dances. I started running around rock and roll bands just to hear him play. I was learning guitar. I wanted to watch him play. And he said, oh, man, he's backslid for sure. <laughs> uh, and so I just threw in the towel, uh, gave up. And then I had to go to church because I was still under my dad's roof. And uh, on a Sunday night, my brother Paul, uh, I, I ran with a guy that was saved six months a year. <laughs> he happened to be saved at this time. Now, he was in church. Out of, when he went in church, he's making out with the girls during the service. You know, he, he was a rascal. He really was. I loved him because he could play guitar. And uh, he, he's over here... Uh, and he and Paul, they, they, they saw me and said, hey, why don't you come to the prayer meeting before church? I said, Paul, I told my I said, you know I'm backslid. You don't go to a prayer meeting when you're backslid. And he said, no, come on, come on with us. Come on. And being an older brother and, and being good with a hammerlock, I went ahead and went. And so I go, but I, I know, I'm, in my mind, I'm backslid. I kneel out of respect because that's the way our people prayed. We were all on our knees. And so while I'm there, I said, I told the Lord what I've been telling for my, Lord, I'd live for you if I knew how, but I don't. I, I lost it. it, it I, I don't know how to keep up. And so why keep trying? None of you ever been there, have you? First get saved, the weight falls off. Everything's wonderful. You're going to heaven. And then about two weeks later, you just... Uh, you're in the mully grubs. You cannot lift your face up. You say, man, I got saved, but I'm a mess. Said, no wonder people don't want to go to church with you. Salvation's made us miserable because I used to enjoy sin. Good night, God. Let me either enjoy sin or enjoy you, but I'm caught in between. 
And so I went in and prayed, and just me and the Lord talked. Something supernaturally, I, it, it is the Lord. It wasn't me because nothing was clicking up. I didn't know this was in the Bible. But in that time, just telling God I can't live in it, that night we had testimony services, and all of a sudden the backslidden teenage boy in the youth group, I want to give a testimony, and I just get up and say, you know, I bailed out, but I would really like to live for God because I think I was really saved, but I don't know where to start. I don't know how to live it. So I'm just giving God a resignation. But I do love you people. Thanks. He started healing me from that day. And from that day on, without anyone ever telling me, when I'd blow it, I said, God, I just cussed that boy out. I shouldn't have called him an SOB. It doesn't seem to work. I'm going to invite him to our youth group, but I just called him an SOB. I don't think he'll come. <laughs> you know, it's not effective evangelism. <laughs> well, I just say, I, I should have done that. I was at the gate one day and cussed a guy so bad, and God said, now you've got to go apologize to him. I said, God, that's where we talked to each other. That's good morning in Richmond. And he said, well, I don't know about good morning, but you go apologize. I said, no, Lord, that, I don't mind apologizing to you, but don't, now don't include other people. <laughs> he said, yeah, yeah, you go apologize. And the guy made fun, capped me, and just thought it was crazy. But I had to do it. When we sin, now let me tell you another story. I was teaching a holiness conference to a bunch of pastors, and I was teaching, I was a morning Bible teacher. And when I read this verse in chapter 2 here, it said, when we sin, we have someone advocating. And a couple of pastors raised their hand. They were very strict, strict holiness people. They said, wait, 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 son, I think you misread that. He said, he can't be advocating for you when you're sinning. I said, well, I said, it says, but if anyone does sin, I'm assuming in the act or at that point, we have an advocate, a legal defender, and Jesus is in the office of being the righteous one. And he said, by the way, Father, I want to remind you, I propitiated you about that sin. I've already bore your wrath against that sin, and I, I want you not to charge them with it because I bore it. They said, you can't be, there can't be. You're saying it's all right to sin. I said, no, I'm not saying it's all right to sin. I'm saying it's all right to have a Savior. It's all right to have someone who said he paid. He either paid for it or he did not. Did Christ pay for the sin? So that means you want to go out and live like the devil. You know, your wife said, honey, you, you, you promised to love me forever. Yes, yeah, she said it. That means I could chase. No, no, no. Loyal love doesn't beget unfaithfulness. Dying love, crucified Savior, never makes the true child of God. One. Shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. No, if you know him, he takes away the appetite. Listen to what this great, great little poem says about my advocate. 
I sinned, and straightway post-haste, Satan flew before the presence of the Most High God and made a railing accusation there. He said, this soul, this thing of clay and sod, has sinned. Tis true that he has named thy name, but I demand his death, for thou hast said, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Shall not thy sentence be fulfilled? Is justice dead? Send now this wretched sinner to his doom. What other thing can righteous ruler do? And thus he did accuse me day and night, and every word he spoke, O God, was true. Then quickly one rose up from God's right hand, before whose glory angels veiled their eyes. He spoke, each jot and tittle of the law must be fulfilled. The guilty sinner dies. But wait, suppose his guilt were all transferred to me and that I paid his penalty. Behold my hands, my side, my feet. One day I was made sin for him and died that he might be presented faultless at thy throne. And Satan fled away. Full well he knew that he could not prevail against such love for every word my dear Lord spoke was true. You have an advocate. You have a sympathetic high priest. You have an intercessor. You have access. This is going on 24 hours a day for you in the third heaven. Christ is not just dead and raised and just wandering around heaven. He's ongoing ministering to the people he's saving. This is, see, the world has no intercessor. The world has no high priest. The world has no advocate. You must first accept Jesus. Then you get all this. You get all that he will do. But to live and die without Jesus is to have no one to represent you, to have no one to get you through the court of heaven without being judged. Christ, my defender. Christ, my satisfier. Christ, my representative. He is all. My, isn't it folly to talk about your righteousness when you've got his to claim? It's his right. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name.